This is a drug like any other. It's not magic. It should be studied. The appropriate doses and dose response curves need to be figured out. The appropriate populations that should be excluded from receiving the medication should be sorted out. I mean, there is evidence, but it's not enough. And we need to study more patients. Welcome to the Nurse Surgery Podcast. I'm Mike Wang, and I'm here with my co-host, Jake P. Colson. We are here to discuss all things neurosurgical. Hi, this is J.P. Colson, a resident in neurosurgery at Rush University. Please note that this is not a CME event, and the opinions and statements made in this podcast do not reflect those of any institution or professional organization. Now, let's get started. Great. So today we're joined by Chris Winfrey. Chris is a faculty neurosurgeon at Columbia University, New York. Uh, Chris, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So I've been following your career a little bit because you give these really interesting and amazing talks about, and I want to use the right term, cannabis, right? Is that the right way to call it? Yes. Thank you for the considerate words. And yes, medical marijuana, medical cannabis, cannabinoids, variety of terminology is appropriate. So it's, it's really changed so quickly. And I mean, in just like five, not, yeah, not even five years, the whole country has changed in terms of its uh, uh, legal and uh, perceptual aspects of this, right? How do you think this happened? Like, this is, it's a very interesting phenomenon to me. So this is a process that's been going on for millennia, right? Humans have known about cannabis dating back to 2000 BC and possibly even earlier. The most recent change in perception, there are a variety of causes for that, and there are a series of seminal events that occurred that we can go through if you'd like, but Americans in particular have become more aware of the beneficial effects of cannabis. There has been an awareness and an embracing, if you will, by the medical community uh, of medical cannabis, not wholeheartedly. And, and understandably, a bit reluctantly because of the absence of data. But as data emerges, the, the benefits of, of cannabis are becoming more um, aware, uh, or physicians are more aware of the benefits and are, are less reluctant to study it and learn about it and actually recommend their patients to it. And it's because cannabis has become more popular in the lay press. There's legislation that's passed that's led to society becoming more accepting of it. And you can actually see this in generational surveys. If you survey the population and you break down those surveys based on generations, the greatest generation, the boomers, the millennials, and the uh, generation X, you see an increasing awareness and an acceptance of cannabis that crosses generations as more people become aware of it. Tell me about the science. Tell me, you said medical benefits. So what do you, you mean? Pain control? Are you talking about appetite? Like what, what are you talking about? So there are a number of disorders that can benefit or patients with these disorders can benefit from cannabis potentially. Mm-hmm. It's a drug like any other. It's got benefits. It's got side effects. There's definitely downsides. But there are certain disorders where patients can really benefit from, from cannabis, whether it's the medical or the synthetics or any, any of the forms. Things like the wasting disorders associated with HIV disease or terminal cancer. The seizures and some of the stiffness and pain associated with 
neurological disorders, epilepsy, multiple sclerosis, for example. The cannabis has been used since the 1800s in the U.S. by the medical community to treat migraines. In fact, that's how it was brought to the U.S. medicine was to treat migraines, and that's historically how it was it was it was utilized. Um, Anti nausea effects on uh, patients with chemotherapy, right? They can benefit from, from cannabis administration. And then a lot of the pain disease, you know, chronic pain of both neuropathic and nociceptive, you know, there are meta analyses of randomized controlled trials showing that cannabis can benefit patients with these disorders. And uh, the numbers are small and they need to get bigger. Uh, remember, for drug studies, if you're studying a new blood pressure medication, you might have a a population study of 10 or 20,000 patients. And some of these meta-analyses are looking at 200 patients. Mm. So we don't want to overstate the strength of the evidence. I mean, there is evidence, but it's not enough. And we need to study more patients. Now, I, I'll admit, and I don't, JP, I don't know if you want to tell, uh, tell your opinion on this. I've always sort of been anti-drugs and anti-marijuana uh, and all that. And I, <laughs> I joked around like we were in the OR once and I, I said, you know, who smokes marijuana? And, and one of the medical students, a sub-I, who was trying to get into her surgery, actually said, well, I do. And first of all, a dumb move, right? And, and so I turned to him, like, are you kidding me? Are you high? Yeah, are you high right now? <laughs> and, and then I said, well, I laughed. I don't know if anybody else did. I said, if you're going to be a neurosurgeon and do drugs, do a real drug that we would do like like cocaine or Adderall, like something to get you, you know, working harder. Not So that's terrible advice. I know it's terrible advice. But, but what you're seeing is a generational change okay. in the approach and acceptance of marijuana. Just like your parents never would have been, oh, I see patients in the office, baby boomer generation. I would never do marijuana because I, I recommend it to patients. And they'll mm -hmm. say, oh, I'm not that type of person. I would never think. But a younger generation might be much more open to that. Right. They may have family, friends who are open about using it, just like they are much more open to gender preference, gender fluidity, mm -hmm. that sort of thing, um, much more so than, say, our parents were. Right. Our generation somewhere in the middle. The younger generation, far more open to this. Remember, they have an immediate access to essentially unlimited information at their fingertips, something right. we never did. We could grow up in these silos, our neighborhoods, where it's our family and our friends, and we weren't exposed to a lot of these other things. Kids today and the younger generations exposed to everything worldwide instantaneously. Yeah. So there's this free flow of information that allows you to be comfortable in a lot of different scenarios. And if one scenario is that you and your buddies use this drug that you can easily get legally, you can see how that sets up a totally different environment then when we grow up, where if your parents say, this is bad and don't do this, that's your silo. That's your exposure. You don't have this, you know, infinite flow of information that, that says that, look, there's another way, to, another way to live life. Well, I mean, I've seen it in my clinic that basically every other patient is now on some variant of, and I know it's, there's a whole science to it, CBD oil or some kind of derivative or they're smoking their jewel with, you know, with an insert that has yeah. some kind of... Could, could we distinguish both for this conversation and importantly for some of our listeners who may not be in the medical field, can we talk about the difference between THC com containing compounds that may have the psychoactive effects that kids enjoy for fun versus things like CBD oil that are, are maybe more often applied medicinally uh, as we're talking about now and, and which of these effects that physicians are increasingly 
um, recommending this for is, is garnered from one substance versus the other. So there's a couple of different stratifications we need to, to deal with right off the bat. One is distinguishing medical cannabis from recreational cannabis. Oh, okay. Right. okay. Physicians are typically in the space of recommending medical cannabis for a specific uh, treatment purpose, right? I suggest you talk to your pain doctor and get medical cannabis to treat this pain syndrome. So this is in a therapeutic environment. That should be kept distinct from physicians really discussing or recommending recreational cannabis, separate issue, right? And uh, by the way, is that a difference in the actual drug or the usage? Well, that gets us to the second okay. type of stratification where we can talk about the different types of both recreational and yeah. medical cannabis available. And since we're physicians, we should probably just talk about the medical cannabis. Mm -hmm. and there are a variety of different types. There's the natural cannabis plant, which has dozens and dozens of chemicals that are the cannabinoids that interact with the endocannabinoid system, which is like your endogenous opioid system. It's just not endorphins. It's the cannabinoids. Now, there are the synthetic cannabinoids, which are made in a lab or a factory or a, a, a drug company's laboratory, right? And these can be packaged and marketed and sold to mimic uh, the, the natural substances which activate the endocannabinoid system. So there's the synthetic cannabinoids and then there's the natural cannabinoids, which are either synthetically derived as chemical compounds, those are the phytocannabinoids, which are either distilled from a plant and given in pure form or synthesized as the natural product and then given, or the combination of all these together as the plant. Grow a plant or buy a plant that's been grown and then you ingest it in some fashion. So those are the different substances in the space. And you can talk about different THC and CBD ratios. The reason this is discussed is because THC and CBD both are natural cannabinoids found in plants, and they're also synthesized and, and administered. But basically, these substances are, are the two primary compounds in, in cannabis. THC is classically thought of as the psychoactive component. It's what gets you high. It's also what gives you an appetite. So people who have wasting disorders from chemotherapy or viral diseases or whatever can take this, get hungry, and gain weight. Mm, okay. It's also the anti-epileptic properties, it's mm. THC, right? Classically, CBD is what's been thought to have the most activity in terms of pain suppression, most analgesic. So it turns out that new data coming out in this past year has shown that THC has very important analgesic properties. It just works through a separate pain pathway. Mm. So as neurosurgeons, we know that there are two separate pain pathways. There's the lateral pain pathway, which allows you to localize where pain is. Pain is in my hand. Get my hand out of the fire. It's a spatial localization. It's the somatosensory cortex, right? The medial pain pathway is the one that interacts with the limbic system, and that provides the affective component of pain perception. It's not the part of the pain that hurts. It's the part of the pain that bums you out because your hand hurts. Mm -hmm. You understand? The emotive aspect, yes. Exactly. So THC has very important anti-pain properties along that emotional pathway. Along the medial side, yeah. Exactly. Mm -hmm. so, so, the con so the bottom line is that just taking CBD may not be enough. And in my clinical experience with patients, because patients will tell me what they've tried and haven't, most of them say that CBD on its own doesn't work. But those that have tried the actual plant, combination which has THC, 
That, in my experience, seems to work much better for pain. So tell us how that fits into your clinical practice. So now you're a neurosurgeon, but you do pain and functional? Correct. So I'm a neurosurgeon. I do peripheral nerve surgery and pain neurosurgery. And I don't write prescriptions, but I do make recommendations. Hmm. So my job is to assess a patient and as part of the conversation, lay out on the table what the treatment options are. Sometimes I send patients for spine surgery. Scary as that sounds, it has a terrible idea. Patients <laughs> can really benefit in certain circumstances. Some patients can benefit from trying additional medications before going down a surgical or neuromodulation pathway. And I will recommend to almost all of my chronic pain patients that they have a discussion with their pain doctor about medical marijuana, among other things. Anticonvulsants, okay. antidepressants, baclofen, medical marijuana. It's in that same conversation. I'm not particularly advocating for a drug pathway. I'm trying to make sure that patients have done a reasonable or reasonably exhaustive uh, set of medication trials before moving to something more invasive. And okay. cannabis is on the table. And so I will recommend that patients talk to their doctors. Because in the two states I practice, New York and New Jersey, medical cannabis is legal. So it's an option for us. And like what percentage of your patients are, let's say new patients, are you actually thinking that it might be helpful? Well, I recommend that they try it. Now, whether it's going to be helpful or not is a different story. So there's numbers on this. There is data. And in pain medicine, especially neuropathic pain medicine, the, the metric that's used is NNT, numbers needed to treat. Mm -hmm. How many patients do you have to treat before you get a successful result? So for Neurontin, which is the classic neuropathic pain medication, that number is between five and six. So that means 5. if you treat 9. six people, then one gets benefit. You treat five and a half, for every five and a half okay. patients you treat, you're going to get a beneficial result. So it's 5.9, actually. You know what it is for cannabis? One. 5.6. Oh, is that right? Wait a minute. That's the same. It's slightly better than Neurontin. It's not more effective? Nope, but it's not less effective. Uh-huh. Cannabis is a drug just like any other. It can benefit some patients. It may not affect other patients, and it has side effects and risks, like any other medication. So in my practice, I treat cannabis like any other medication. It's something to try in an effort to get your pain under control, and if it works, great. If it doesn't, you move on to the next. But that shows just how hard it is to treat your patients. Well, that's right? true. That's neuropathic pain in general. Right. But that says to me that if you have something that's so difficult to treat, why limit yourself in the tools available to treat those pain syndromes? Use whatever components you can as part of a multimodal pharmacologic strategy in the context of a greater multidisciplinary pain management effort to get their pain under control. Whether it's surgical, neuromodulation, psychiatric, physiotherapeutic, or pharmacologic. Why limit yourself? Employ everything, get it on the table, and working with your patient and their pain doctor, get them on board with a regimen that's most likely to succeed. And if cannabis is playing a role in that, so be it. So you, you mentioned practicing in New York, New Jersey, where medical marijuana is now legal. Um, what are your protections or what, what's your interaction with the federal law? So thus far, the feds have been hands-off, but I don't need protection since I'm not prescribing, not prescri I'm right. not using, I'm not really part of this, but I can make medical recommendations based on my training and practice, mm -hmm. and I'm insulated as a physician. Now, if I recommend something that's malpractice, then there is civil liability there. I mean, the feds aren't going to come after me. Um, if I were just recommending crazy things, then, you know, as a physician, you're not going to last very long. So what you do is you try to make recommendations for your patients that's in your patient's best interest that's based on what the best medical advice you have available. And so in that context, 
even with the context of prescribing pain medication, you're, you're protected. Now, if you're an outlier writing massive opioid prescriptions, that's a whole different matter. But in my practice, none of this really applies, since I'm not prescribing the drugs. But even if I were, if I were doing it appropriately as a credentialed practitioner, you would be protected. Now, if I hoarded a bunch of marijuana and were selling it illicitly in my practice, you understand that's a whole different thing yeah. that would violate federal regulations and would be unethical. But, but even your recommendation is dependent on being in a state where it's legalized because it, it's available, clinically, I'm sure clinically safe. I'm not sure that's true. If mm. medical marijuana were not legal, like for example, for a number of years I practiced in New York and New Jersey and it was not legal in New Jersey. I would still recommend it to patients, but I'd say, look, it's not legal in New Jersey. But I'd say that if it were, I would suggest that you would try that. So you can make recommendations. Now, what I don't do is say, you need to cross the George Washington Bridge, go to this person and this. Like, you can't. Right. I don't think you can really do that. And I never did. But I would have the discussion as a therapy on the table. I mean, there are plenty of patients with insurance plans. They won't pay for deep brain stimulation, spinal cord stimulation, because of the vagaries of their payer, you know, their insurance company. I still have a conversation. I can still recommend spinal cord stimulation, even though I know their insurance isn't going to pay for it. You're not going to not have the medical conversation right. just because the patient doesn't have access. You want to give them complete information. How they, you know, can access, that's a logistical concern that follows thereafter. And, and we're talking, just to, for the listeners to know, we're talking about adults, right? So, like, if you're talking about... Younger folks, I think there, there probably is a different set of risks as well. Right? There's no doubt about that. And here's what the issues are. For one thing, our dose response curves for medical cannabis have not been worked out. We don't know the optimal dose to give for a certain disease, right? So that has to be worked out. What we do know is that in adolescent populations, for a couple different reasons, drugs in general, cannabis in particular, can be problematic. For one thing, Cannabis in school-aged kids can, can, can impair learning ability. Mm. Their ability to focus, remember, it, it can be compromised. So there's that. The other issue is that adolescents who are psychologically, let's say, fragile, here's what can happen. If you take one of these, we'll just say, fragile psychological people, and you subject them to a series of stressors, this can be stress living in a low socioeconomic status. Mm or in a broken home, or parents who are divorcing, or maybe in foster home, or who live in an area where there's racial stress, right? Where uh, there's um, issues related to being either black or white or Latin in a certain environment, right? And then you add another stress, poor school performance, for example. And then you add another stress. The combination of those stressors can precipitate episodes of psychosis and can actually convert that patient to full-blown schizophrenia. Hmm. It's, and there's a, there's a name for that, and basically where you have these fractional hazards that when combined can push the person over the brink and have a, a psychotic break. Cannabis use, actually heavy cannabis use, can represent an independent psychological stressor that can precipitate these breaks. Wow. So if you have a vulnerable adolescent, then you dose them high doses of cannabis, therapeutically or otherwise, you can put them over the brink into a psychotic break. So we need to study this further. This is an emerging problem that people are aware of, and so for these reasons, I don't recommend its routine use in adolescents. It has to be studied further, so I try to restrict my recommendations to adults and above. Okay. 
what are the avenues toward answering these questions? How, how, how can this research be done today? Um, is, is the NIH handing out grants? So there's three, there's three things. You need to get people interested in this so they can secure whatever funding, federal or otherwise. Hmm. I don't know that the NIH is releasing funding for this, but there have been government-sponsored studies looking at cannabis. There was a White House Commission study with the Institute of Medicine some years ago looking at this. So there is some interest. What will make the biggest difference is reclassifying medical marijuana instead of a Schedule One drug, which is by definition has no medical benefit, like heroin, ecstasy, LSD. Mm-hmm. That's where marijuana is classified currently by the federal government. Reclassifying it as a Schedule II drug, a drug that has risks, potentially dangerous, but has potential medical benefit, that will open up the floodgates for both federally funded studies, as well as attracting capital from private industry to finance privately funded studies. Because right now, why would, knowing that a drug may cost $100 100 to $500 million to bring to market. Why would a company invest in that knowing that's a federally illegal drug? It makes no sense. But if the feds release that illegality and allow all that capital flight into the study of medical marijuana, that would be a game changer. And I think that's the step that will show or indicate or, or be the fork in the road that allows us to, to push the field further. And how are drugs rescheduled? Is this an act of the <clears throat> legislature? Is it... So basically what's been happening once every several years since the 70s, since like 1970, marijuana was classified as a Schedule One drug, really despite the hippies, but that's a whole separate <laughs> conversation. Ever since then, the American Medical Association among the, and other medical groups have appealed to the federal government to reclassify the drug. So periodically it happens, and one day it'll probably get reclassified. But that's what really needs to happen to, to get the funding available federally and privately to study this and really hammer out these, these much needed questions, right? Dose response curves, what are the, the, the exact combination of THC, CBD and all the rest that gives the optimal therapeutic results? Without this study, we, we, we won't know. So with all the evidence that you've shared and your experience both in reviewing literature and in your own clinical practice, I, I guess the obvious glaring question that I'm left with and I'm sure our listeners are left with, and you could be as broad or specific as as you'd like, going however far back you'd like, why is this still illegal? So it, it was illegal in the 30s because the nylon industry, largely by the DuPont family, lobbied the federal government to make hemp and all of its related plants illegal. Hemp was a natural fabric directly competing with the synthetic fabrics. So by using their political clout to make hemp, and by necessity pot, illegal, it removed them as, a, as an economic competitor in, the, in, the, in, the, in their economy, right? So that's how it became illegal, just through lobbying. And then in the 1970s, the, when the, 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 sort of the hippies and, and the sort of anti-establishment groups embraced hemp and weed and cannabis and all the rest, the government basically made it Schedule One, almost despite them, and ever since has been reluctant to to change that designation. So over time, it will change because people are becoming more aware of the medical benefits. But it's going to take some time. Now, what's interesting is there's been a lot of data recently suggesting that medical marijuana may play a role in helping deal with the 
substance use disorders and the opioid mm-hmm. crisis, right? So what you see is that states that pass medical cannabis laws, that legalize medical cannabis, what you're seeing is a steady reduction in opioid prescriptions, right, in the Medicare population at least, and you're seeing a reduction in opioid overdose deaths, right? So weed is, in theory, protective against opioid overdose deaths. Why do you think that is? Because people are going to use drugs to treat whatever condition they have, whether it's to treat some psychological issue, to treat pain. And if they're smoking weed or eating edibles, that sort of thing, and getting high on weed, they're not dying of overdoses. The reason for that is the endocannabinoid system connects everywhere in the nervous system except the respiratory centers. There's never been a single documented case of opioid overdose killing a patient, ever, in the history of medical literature, all right? It doesn't happen. Because you can smoke all the weed you want, you'll get hungry, you'll get paranoid, but you're not gonna stop breathing. When you overdose on opioids, you stop breathing and you die. And so people are gonna turn to something. But if they're turning to weed, they're not dying. What's also interesting is when you have medical cannabis laws, you see a reduction in traffic fatalities. Hmm. You do see an increase in DUIs with cannabis being the substance they're, they're getting high on and driving. So people are going to get impaired and they're gonna drive. The question is, how do you want that person to be wrong? Do you want them to get drunk and then plow into a line of school kids on the side of the road doing 80 miles an hour in a car? Or do you want that person to get high on a weed and then get a ticket for being stopped at an intersection waiting for the stoplight to turn green, right? So, you know, how do you want to be wrong? I'd rather have a bunch of people on the road because you're going to have people getting high and getting drunk and being on the road. There's no way to stop that completely. But if that's going to happen, I would rather them be on weed than alcohol. Hmm. And what the data shows is that fewer people are dying in cars um, than, than if they don't have medical marijuana laws or access to weed legally, and they're just turning to alcohol instead. So there's a protective effect. So we, we touched on some of the dangers or, or areas for further research in recommending these substances for teenagers. Um, in your current practice, are there any other groups of patients or a type of patient where you steer clear of recommending marijuana, even for neuropathic pain, a pathology that you normally would, but are, are there certain cases or certain situations where you think it, it might not be the best for this category of patient? So I guess you could argue that someone who has a documented substance use disorder would, or a psychotic disorder would be um, not necessarily appropriate for this, but I would defer to the prescriber. I mm. still could bring this up as a treatment option, but remember, I'm not ever pushing people to try something. I, it's a conversation where we discuss the options. And what I say is, you know, you'll have to discuss this further with your pain doctor. Because patients will ask me, oh, can you write me a prescription for whatever opioid? I say, no, I don't write prescriptions, but you should have that conversation with your doctor because that or related medication may be appropriate for you. And I have the same conversation with medical cannabis. And if their pain doctor ultimately decides that they're not appropriate candidates for it because of substance abuse disorder or whatever medical history, then I would defer to that. But I don't sit there and try to parse out who 
has had a history of psychosis and who's sort of right or wrong for it. We're just having a conversation about the options. Hmm. But I think that needs to happen at the prescriber's level. All right. Well, this has been an incredibly informative conversation for me. And I'm sure for our listeners, you've brought a lot of data and a lot of experience to the table that many of our audience may have never been exposed to before. Um, any parting thoughts for patients, for physicians, for anyone who might be listening? So my recommendation is that physicians and patients consider medical cannabis as an option, but understand that this is, this is a drug like any other. It's not magic. Drugs of all types have advantages, they have disadvantages, there's patients for whom they're appropriate, there's patients for whom they're inappropriate. There are side effects, sometimes horrible side effects, that can happen with any medication. This medication should be, should be treated like others. It should be studied, the appropriate doses and dose response curves need to be figured out, the appropriate populations that should be excluded from receiving the medication should be sorted out. There should be dramatic increases in federal funding and private funding brought to the brought to the uh to to answer these questions and i think rescheduling the drug as a class two drug would be a big help but this drug like the rest deserves further study and can benefit a lot of patients and i think if both the government prescribers and patients are open to that over time this will happen but i don't think we should just wholeheartedly embrace this as a as a cure-all for all patients for all things it needs to be studied but I think having an open mind about it, it would be the, the take-home message I'd like to have everyone really remember. Well, that is a, a lot to consider, and the coming years will be very interesting, both on the legal and clinical landscape for us to watch. Thank you so great. much for being here. All right, thank you. Mm-hmm.